1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the special series on the New Books Network that's about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, host of the series. Today I'll be talking to Christopher Tice about his book Writing Science in the 21st Century, published by Broadview Press in 2019. This is Strunk's Elements of Style for the science writer. But gone is the bad writing on the left and the good writing on the right. Because Tice's book is of the 21st century, meaning it's at the height of writing research and communication studies. There is no left and right where Tice might put examples when, as he demonstrates page for page, writing in science is only ever as good as the purposes the writer aims to achieve and the attention readers give the writing. Decades of research into genres have taught us that texts come in all shapes and sizes, which fact decides the effectiveness of an individual writer's attempt at, say, a grant proposal, a literature review, or a research article. Christopher Tice, professor emeritus of writing studies at the University of California, relays such research to his readers in clear prose, in illustrative exercises, and in real-world examples from published texts. Christopher Tice calls our day the golden age of writing and science. And though the claim is bold, the claim is true. Something new is happening in science when Google Docs allows teams working at all points across the globe to collaborate on a manuscript. Something new has arrived when registered reports help improve the accuracy of results, when blogs help research groups attain the publicity they deserve, when multimodal forms of presentation, and when vast online storage spaces make the data available in all its granularity. All its richness, all its multiplicity. Yes, something new has happened in science, and Christopher Tice has written the book to tell us what Writing Science in the 21st Century. Writing Science in the 21st Century is a fascinating read just for its informativeness. Tice advances the contemporary view of writing as the design of a multimedia environment, and he advocates for schooling which fully prepares scientists for careers in research by improving their abilities and their readiness to communicate. These are interesting topics and important ones. But the book has hands-on topics too, like how to construct an abstract, how to establish credibility among readers, how to create a blog about science, and how to wield a semicolon. The premise of Tice's practical advice is rhetoric. Now, for a book that claims to be, for the 21st century, the revival of a 3,000-year-old tradition might seem counterintuitive. Actually, though, it is intuitive, and it's the impetus of Tice's recommended practice for the writer of science. Rhetoric is a word that makes us think of Athens in the days of Aristotle, but actually, rhetoric is nothing other than effective communication. The two are one, and what defines rhetoric or effective communication is this. The writer attracts attention to meanings, and the writer directs attention for purposes. Rhetoric makes clear again to all who have forgotten, and that is some in science, that the introduction, for example, is in place to serve highly specific purposes on highly specific subject matter for highly specific readers. The same goes for every part of the IMRAD structure, introduction, methods, results, discussion. The same goes for every form of writing, whether in science or not. That is rhetorical writing all over aware of what matters to purposes the writer wants to achieve. Writing science in the 21st century tells the particulars about the research article, the research review, journalistic forms of writing, and much more. And writing science in the 21st century gives writers the confidence to write what they mean and the ability to judge when what they mean is not what they write. Exercises in every chapter send the reader into the real world of science writing to discover how it's done and why it's done that way. The clarity of the sentences and the appearance of the page help the reader grasp and organize information, whether that information is the objectives of the results section or the arrangements of good infographics. This is the book for anyone in science writing. For the student, the postdoc, the PI, the journalist, Writing Science in the 21st Century is just what the title says it is, and I can't see why anyone serious about science writing today shouldn't read it today. Christopher Tice's career in research and education has perfectly positioned him to write a book like Writing Science in the 21st Century. For 20 years, he taught university juniors and seniors how to write in their disciplinary contexts. Then a move to UC Davis moved Chris entirely inside the sciences. Chris taught STEM majors how to write, and the success of 10 years in that program led to his idea for a textbook on writing. Since publication two years ago, Writing Science in the 21st Century has proven itself a teaching asset and a learning tool. Scholarly Communication, this special series on the New Books Network, is the podcast about how knowledge gets known. Wherever writing and knowledge connect, there the communication of scholarship is taking place, and there too we at Scholarly Communication have our place. So let's begin today's episode. Christopher Tyson, Writing Science. Christopher, Chris, welcome to Scholarly Communication.
0: Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for the interview. It's, uh, it's great
1: to talk with you. Um, your teaching stands at uh, the, I would say, it, w- it was the germ of the book anyway. And it's very clear from the way you write and the advice that you give that you're very passionate about education. Could you make for us uh, with also... Background detail, personal detail, as to what teaching means to the uh, the book, and what the book means for teaching.
0: Yes, uh, the book came about uh, completely because of my experience as a teacher of uh, STEM majors uh, at uh, at UC Davis. Um, I've been doing it for quite a few years, as as you mentioned. And one of the things that I I realized was that there is so much that uh, happens in the lives of uh, Students within the university uh, that sometimes makes it difficult for them to understand exactly uh, what the best forms of communication are. Um, In all my courses in writing and STEM, I start off the courses with a uh, with a question for students. I want them to write about their experience as both writers and as scientists, and I like them to think about how they have developed in both of those areas and if there's any relationship between those two concepts one of the things that has happened over the years that i've seen in the writing that students have done in response to this assignment is that they're they're feeling in in most cases of a disjunct between writing and science and their own personal experience too often the students who have come into these courses as uh, juniors and seniors in the university uh, and in their stem majors Their only experiences of writing, other than the occasional course in which they've actually been required to write within their majors, uh, has been the courses that they took uh, in their first year or or second year in, say, the English department or in uh, a writing program, in which the writing that they were doing was not really focused on their work in science. And this more or less recapitulates what their experience had been in high school, where rarely were students asked to write in any science class, uh, even though their own interests were developing in science. And they thought of writing as something that only happened in an English class and often only about literature. So they never really thought about the writing that they were doing as scientists, much less thinking about the kinds of writing that they would have to do after they
1: graduated, if they went on in their scientific careers. And that's Something I've experienced as well, this this disjunct, as you as you put it so uh, so forcefully, really, and it it has that sort of a force where if you're writing about, you know biology, um the only way that you can actually connect with writing out there through the advice you might get or some of the resources you might find would be the same people who are writing about Jane Austen and Charles Dickens, <laughs> and literary style. In fact, I even spoke to a writing instructor who said that at their university, amongst the fine print on all dissertations that, be, that are handed in is the line, that it be of literary value. Again, one of those terms cropping up where it need not really be. Isn't that the case?
0: Yes, that's, that's, that's absolutely true. And I think it leads to a kind of misunderstanding about the nature of writing and certainly the nature of rhetoric. Um, another one of the uh, sort of uh, stereotypical comments about uh, writing in science is that uh, science writers uh, would like to believe that writing is uh, like recording data um, you know, in the lab in a particular experiment, uh, that it should be, um, what shall we say, it should be self-evident that um, the facts should speak for themselves. So the notion that writing is rhetorical, that it deals with this murky area of trying to understand readers and trying to achieve purposes that sometimes aren't even really clear to the writers themselves if they haven't thought about it, becomes very difficult and makes uh, rhetoric a kind of thing that that uh, students in science would like to put off or you know not really want to engage with. I recall a, a, a really excellent student in one of my uh, early classes at Davis. It was a very good writer. Uh, but when I asked the student about his plans, uh, you know, post-graduation, he said, I, I really am afraid to get into areas of science that I'm not really comfortable with. I, I would much prefer to stay in the lab and continue to do that work, rather than to try to deal with the
1: vagaries of communication. That's um, that's a loss, isn't it? <laughs> Very much so. Uh, but I, but I wonder what motivates that sort of thinking because I know that I've encountered plenty of on the scientists' side, uh, whether it's professors, PIs, postdocs, students, even, um, where the writing is seen as, let's say, a filling in. So if you have a, you know, the typical experimental protocol slash, uh research article you know you've got those four blocks of text and then put atop it a abstract my feeling is that either there is that disjunct you're talking about where the writers feel well you've just got to fill in the bits you've got to make it up so that you've got enough text there and that it somehow represents what you did or there's a bit of looking down upon it as the last bits, the last stage, the last step in the real research. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. There is a, there's an expression that's used not only in the sciences, but I find it in, you know, a lot of different disciplines as well. Uh, And this is the term writing up. Uh, We're writing up our results, right? Uh, As if it were the final stage of a process It actually has been much more interesting in terms of the interactions in the lab or in the field or in the thinking about, you know, among team members, those kinds of things. And then the writing becomes a kind of an afterthought. Um, And that's the kind of attitude or perspective that uh, I think in my own teaching that I try to get students beyond. And fortunately, let let me say this, let me stress this. For every student uh, who has the kind of attitude that I mentioned before that was exemplified by that one student, there are actually uh, an equal number of students who actually feel a very good relationship with writing because they had the experience, usually as children or in high school, for example, before they got to the university or in particular courses in the university, where actually writing was really attended to. And the teachers were were very conscious of trying to help students appreciate the, the, the difficulties and the challenges that writing brought about. So I have a number of students in all of these classes who actually feel very good about themselves as writers and who actually look forward to the opportunity to be challenged to write different kinds of things that I present them with within the
1: course. Well, that's great success. I know that I have myself um, a number of years back now, I've been teaching writing for a while now, but I know I had my own sort of epiphany when, and this gets back to that topic of the literary style, when it dawned on me that all of this writing stuff we're talking about, the creative writing, which generally gets equated with all writing, is only one small block of it. And I wonder what we could say now to sort of broaden people's perspective of what writing is. I mean, I had one, um, perhaps uh, you'll also know him, uh, William Germano, who has written about publishing and writing. And he said he hates the word creative writing because it makes it sound as if all the other writing isn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, I, But to get back to my question or the, the the issue that we might be able to explore a bit is how could we sort of define or give a feeling for what it is that is covered generally by the area of writing, be it in the sciences or anywhere else
0: Well I, I try to address that you know in the early chapters in in the book uh, and particularly in the second chapter which I, I title writing with confidence and and uh, you know being able to express yourself through <clears throat> through writing in the in that chapter, one of the things that I really strive to do there is to, give a lot of examples from students for ways in which they can use writing, um, not only to forward their own scientific interests, but also to express themselves, uh, to get past any kind of uh, trepidation they might have about writing either through the kinds of experiences that they've had where they've been criticized for their ability to write and so have developed a hesitancy to do so. One of the great things about writing science in the 21st century is that we've got all of these mechanisms by which people can express themselves in relatively non-threatening ways. For example, Facebook, right? Uh, Most of the students will have Facebook accounts or Instagram accounts, some kind of an account whereby they can express themselves either visually or with some amount of text uh, in a non-threatening way. And so I encourage people to use all of these means. Uh, another great example of that is the, the almost constant uh, invitations that we get through websites and, and social media to give our evaluations of things, to write reviews of things. The fact that um, you can write commentaries on things that you, get, that you see on websites, for example. And I encourage students to, to dive in and use some of these methods Uh, to just get the experience of writing and to read what other people say. Uh, And this is a way to get beyond that kind of sense of forbidding sense of writing as something that is very formal and actually does not give the person the opportunity to to write in a a non-threatening and free way. So I'm trying to give a sense of writing as a very broad world with many different kinds of expression. And added to that is the ability to use different media, uh, whether it's photographs or video or audio, whatever it might be to, uh, you know, to contribute tables or charts or infographics, things that students might really be interested in doing. I've had a student just this last term, for example, who a very interesting student who actually had difficulty trying to write the uh, research review that is one of the major assignments within the course. But the follow-up assignment to that actually asked the students to take what they wrote about in the research review and to craft it in different media for a different purpose and a different audience. It turns out that this particular student was already very, very skilled and experienced in creating videos in which he tried to communicate some of his interest in science. So while the formal assignment of the research review was daunting for him, the follow-up assignment to craft a video, which was one of the options, was was one that he looked forward to with a lot of excitement. And indeed, I have found that my students in writing and science are most excited by the opportunity to craft their research for audiences who are not scientists, but who actually have a stake
1: in the results of that research. And from what I've heard, many scientists who think that way also claim to learn in the process because of the fact that it needs to be, let's say, I mean, translated is clearly too heavy a word, but transferred at least across, you know, groups or communities that new things get discovered, sort of the obvious problems that, you know, a group of insiders overlook?
0: Well, one of the things i found among my students, and I see this, you know, recapitulated in in the articles that I read in, you know, publications like National Geographic, for example, the kinds of things that I also avidly read to get knowledge about, you know, current developments in areas that I'm not that familiar with. One of the things i found is that excitement, that sense that, I have an opportunity here to reach a reader who may not be familiar with the the jargon that is used in the lab that I need in order to communicate with fellow scientists in my field. Uh, They may not know that language, but it is certainly certainly possible for them to understand the ideas and to understand the results of science uh, through an act that I do call translation, to translate the kind of information that is normally thought of as very um, very specific and, and very esoteric in the scientific field, but to communicate it in a way that is understandable
1: for a different and much broader audience. I wonder if we could go back to that student who you said had trouble with the formal assignment of the literature review, and yet when it came to using multimedia to express that content through other venues... It it was exciting, and he, he or she showed his uh, a lot of skill. Uh, this this is a sort of, let's say, genre jumping, isn't it? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to move from one form to the other. And, and I know that uh, there's different views on this. I mean, writing is, in an ideal world, and perhaps from an administrative perspective, meant to be a skill that is universal and transferable. And yet, I think a lot of people on the ground have noticed... Um, that's pretty far from the reality, so I wonder if you could uh, give your comment on on that issue.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's something that I think about a lot because, um, as I explain in chapters five, six, and seven of the, of the, the book, um, the the gold standard really for communication in science still is that formal research article, uh, which you know you you already characterized in some in the minds of some scientists as sort of like filling in the blanks. Um, the fact that there are a good number of people who are daunted by that kind of formal structure um, leads me to think about all the different varieties of science communication that are, you know, that are available to us now online. Um, but I wonder in the terms of the lives of scientists, uh, the power that is exerted by the, the you know, the refereed scientific article in terms of uh, scientists' advancement, particularly in institutions of higher education. Um, and I wonder, as time goes on, whether the, the hegemony of that kind of formal generic structure is going to somehow be moderated or alleviated by a recognition of the great variety of ways in which science can be communicated.
1: Do you see some signs of that happening already? I, I know you, you broach this in your book, but one that occurs to me is in um, the field of physics, at least since the mid to late 90s, they've had their um, archive or archive, I think it is, something along those lines. But I mean, it's it's pretty much an open access platform where you know, the latest uh, physics research is just being simply put out there and it's taken quite seriously.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's that's an excellent example. And I think of another example as well. Um, I'm a member of the, uh, you know, community of those who are interested in the uh, work of the uh, American Association for the Advancement of Science. And one of the things that AAAS has done is to uh, open opportunities for grants Uh, for support of other kinds, for prizes, uh, to people who are actually able to communicate something about their uh, emotional excitement with the research that they do. As a matter of fact, I was just this morning, I was looking at uh, a call for uh, for papers uh, that for young scientists and the emphasis of the essays that they would that they would write would not be so much on the, the details of the research that they had done that might be communicated in a, you know, in a scientific review article, but that can be communicated through an essay in which they really explore their own process of becoming scientists, their excitement with the work that they do, their sense of how the research that they're doing might uh, you know, might aid in solving some of the world's problems. So that's a different kind of writing, a different kind of communication than what is normally committed, you know, that is normally conveyed in the uh, in the scientific uh, journal articles.
1: And I agree with you that, I mean, somewhere on the horizon, I mean, nobody can see into the future, but somewhere on the horizon, I, I would expect, yes, the research article will have competitors. Uh, but even in that form, if a writer can learn to be amazed by the act of writing just as as you've been talking about as they can be in all of these other forms and i i do believe it's possible to get someone excited about any particular form of writing if they can see you know what it is that they're actually doing the thinking the analyzing the informing and the communicating and connecting i mean this comes out so clearly and and it's one of those obvious points that needs stating in in your first chapter when you write to reach readers, as you call it. And you show quite clearly that uh, you don't necessarily state a research article directly, but it's it's understood that in the sciences, that's the way it's done. If you think back to the history of the research article, I think earlier, I'm taking 100, 200 years ago, it would have been understood as communication amongst back then gentlemen, right? Yes. I think nowadays, there's quite a lot of Part of the disjunct that you were talking about is the fact that it's been lost sight of what the purpose of the research article actually is there for. If it's seen, as you so wonderfully make the point in that chapter, writing to reach readers, as you know, publishing is communicating, it is the formation of a community. If you, if you start to understand things that way when you're putting together your research article, I think even within those constraints, you can be excited and show your enthusiasm.
0: I I totally agree with that. And one of the other things that I would point out and one of the things that I explore uh, in those chapters and and later on is that in some ways, uh, through my own investigations of of the literature, that the nature of the scientific uh, article is changing. And what I mean by that is this. That um, as it becomes possible for readers to gain access to more and more of the primary scientific literature, for example, uh, in, a, in an article in, uh, uh, say, the New York Times, for example, which I, I cite, that there is usually a link in those articles in the online format to the primary research that was reported in, let's say, the New England Journal of Medicine, or in Science, or in Nature, or The Lancet, for example. That those links give readers access to material that they never would have had access to material before. And we're talking about an audience, a broad cross-section of, of interest groups, um, uh, people from different backgrounds, nationally, Uh, different linguistic backgrounds, uh, so that they have access to this material that they never would have had access to before. And what that means is that then editors of research journals need to be aware that their readership is changing. It's not just a, a, a readership of the, you know, the small scientific research communities. No, there is now a much broader accessibility and so one of the things I've noticed is that in the abstracts and introductions to scientific articles, there is a sense of a broader audience, a sense that we're not only talking to the other people who have done research in this in this particular area, but a sense of how this research can be valuable toward, let's say, solving problems that, that all of us face. Great example is in the current pandemic. I mean, this is a wonderful opportunity for science to do the tough work of communicating what what is learned through the science to a much broader and in many ways, very much more skeptical audience. And the more opportunities that that scientists have to communicate with with broader audiences, the better the quality of that kind of uh, more broadly based rhetoric will become.
1: And that question of audiences, uh, particularly in this chapter, when you talk about rhetorical analysis, one of those key points you talk about, for instance, purposes, the writer's purposes, the order of the information, and then you talk about the intended readers. And um, in my own teaching, and I would love to hear your experience on this point as well, I know that I have also worked more conventionally than what you were just describing. So reaching first for the expert readership that any, say, postdoc or even even a master's student might be actually having in mind initially anyway. And one of my approaches has been this, which, which is something that you talk about in, in in a very similar form in the book is to gather the keywords of whatever uh, you happen to be writing. Let's just call it a manuscript. Um, So to gather the keywords there, to search the journals that you're aiming to publish in with those keywords, to find the authors who are writing on them, and so identify an audience in that particular venue who are covering and thinking about the same things, and then analyze how is it that they're covering and thinking about those same things. Um, Would that be a technique that you would consider perhaps also using with students?
0: Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, and this is one of the things that actually happens when I'm teaching the courses. Um, As I say, uh, in, in in the course in writing and science, one of the main assignments is for students to do a review of research. And it's usually research that they themselves have been engaged in or really would love to become involved in. Many of my students, since they are juniors and seniors, uh, are parts of uh, labs. They have become part of the work of a particular lab. They've really gotten into this work very, very intensely. But another, in but what I've found often is that students actually are not as familiar with the scientific research literature as one would hope they would be. And the reason is because the language of the research literature is so esoteric and so dependent upon um, the you know the statistics and the and the techniques and the jargon that's used by the researchers, that they themselves have difficulty comprehending that material. So it actually, when, when I ask them to do their research review, often for them it's the first time that they've actually been challenged to really get into that literature and try to understand it as clearly as they need to in order to try to summarize it, paraphrase, it, paraphrase it and communicate it in uh, some kind of overarching fashion in order to identify trends in the research or you know where the research is going etc so it's at the reading exercise and the, the analytic reading exercise of those articles is so important for people to learn how to do the work themselves and if you add to that this rhetorical dimension and say When you read these articles, what is your sense of the audiences that they're trying to reach? What is your sense of the purposes that this information is serving? Uh, The more rhetorical analysis that students do of the research literature that they're using as the basis for their own research and writing, the better they will become at understanding how they themselves can manipulate those things for their readers.
1: It's also a part of taking yourself seriously as a reader, isn't it? Because if you gauge the effect that uh, the literature is having on you, well, then you've already begun gathering evidence. I mean, they're scientists, aren't they? (laughs) As to, you know, what does what in text?
0: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. One of the other things that that I hope will happen when students do this kind of, of, of assignment is that they will begin to make that transition, that necessary transition from themselves as students. In other words, receivers of information that other people have, you know, have designed or have, have identified. And, and as potential contributors to the research themselves. Uh, this is something that I do uh, have done for many, many years with graduate students in my own field in writing studies and in education, But it's something that I see as necessary for the undergraduate students uh, in STEM who are actually about to make this transition between being undergraduate students and either graduate students or people who will become contributors to
1: industries
0: uh, that really, you know, make use of what they have been learning in their science classes
1: and that really connects with um, issues that we've already talked about, as you say, for instance, that, um, you know, earlier on in their careers, perhaps in high school or in their undergraduate careers, they haven't, some of them anyway, depending on the the school they're at or what sort of writing instruction is available, haven't necessarily had outside of English classes the chance to write in science. Or right. um, they haven't had opportunities or haven't used the opportunities or been shown the opportunities outside of class to be able to write and do science at the same time. But another point that you bring up, and I find that this one's quite relevant here, is the fact that they lack helpful feedback on their writing. And that has then the effect, I would say, in the case that you're talking about this transition, right, from the undergrad into, let's say, career science, of making it so that, well, they they experience quite personally this disjunct that you were talking about in, in writing, that they... They just don't even understand what it is that they're meant to be doing with these texts,
0: right? Uh, I think it's a very good point about feedback. Feedback, as you point out, is one of the things I return to again and again in, uh, you know, in the book and in my teaching. Uh, the way in which feedback is used, I think, the most effective way in which it's used is not so much in the feedback that I give students about their writing, although the students will always say. We love your feedback, right? Um, what's really important is the feedback that they learn to give and get in peer response workshops. Um, I'm very careful in to design peer response so that students feel that sense of responsibility to give good feedback to one another, but also how to ask for feedback on the work, the, the work that you're doing yourself. Um, I think that peer response is so important in the, the a scientific context, but in any, you know, any writing context uh, that I really try to foreground that with within the course. Uh, I, the way I talk about it in writing in, in STEM is actually in the context of how research is done and how scientific discoveries and advancements are made. It's through the through the process of peer review, and if we can teach students early on to become good readers and then uh, uh, careful, conscientious givers of feedback to one another, we have achieved so much in terms of their ability to become contributing members of the scientific community.
1: You also make the point in the book, uh, which adds to the argument that. Writing is done collaboratively anyway in the lab. I, I mean, open any research journal and show me an article that was written by one person, right? I mean, they aren't out there, are they?
0: Right. That's that's exactly right. And I think this is one of the distinctions that is often made between the sciences and uh, the humanities, for example. The notion of single authorship um, is, you know, really not... Um, not that common within scientific fields, unless we have writers who are writing individual books or say a review article, for example. Uh, But the idea of the kind of communication that should go on within a lab among the different contributors to research is so important to the sense of the building of a community and the possibility that younger members, newer members, people who are newer to the research can actually become productive contributing members of that research lab community.
1: All the more important then that those research groups be well managed. Um, I've listened uh, and also have recently uh, uh, spoken with uh, one of the editors at Nature and they do many uh, great podcasts and I listened to one of their podcasts, their series about uh, The postdoc and the situation that very many postdocs, unfortunately, experience in labs where they more or less find themselves in the position of being results producers, uh, equipment runners and so on, instead of being maybe taken into somebody's wing and shown, you know, the real full process of how we go from hypothesis all the way to publication. I think
0: that's absolutely true, and one of the things that I that I think is really a, a, a wonderful kind of development is is exemplified, say, at UC Davis by a couple of different things that the the different majors do. We have a very thriving undergraduate research office uh, that really promotes opportunities within classes and within particular research areas for the undergraduate students, such as the ones who are in my my classes. Uh, really gives them opportunities to be working and contributing members of those communities with, as as you put out, uh, a PI, for example, who, who actually sees part of uh, his or her role to actually uh, take those new researchers under their wing and actually show them the ropes and actually help them become contributing members. I had a student this past term who I was very gratified to see, who had done a marvelous job on, on her research review. And um, she took it to her uh, lab advisor, to her, the PI of the lab, showed her the results of the, um, of the research review that she had done, uh, got all kinds of praise from the PI and was offered an opportunity to become an even more uh, important contributor to the research in the lab. And when I hear stories like that, and which which I hear very frequently, uh, it really makes me feel good about not only the kind of work we're doing in the course, but also about what's possible in terms of the relationship uh, between uh, mentors and their students.
1: It probably comes down to people who are the mentors or people who are further in their careers I would say recognizing the value of education, wherever that happens to reach into. I mean, we're talking now about writing, but I would say the same is true of the subject content as well. Yes, absolutely. I totally agree. One thing I wanted to come back to was um, in your chapter there about reaching readers, you list a number of the elements of rhetoric. And one that really caught my attention was the order of information that you, the way you... Basically, structure what it is that you're writing, mm-hmm. and it's it seems to be a bit of a problem for. I'm going to come back to the research article for the writer of the research article, especially the novice writers of research articles, to understand well how is someone somebody going to typically navigate this um, text, right? It's, it's it it has the sort of misleading impression that yeah, you go from Obviously, the title, right down to the discussion, it it seems so inviting to do it that way, but it's just not normally done that way. I mean, I tell my students that, well, you can be sure everyone's going to read the title, and then we'll see.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and uh, and this and this is uh, something that you also bring up in the book that you know you you need to reflect on. Well, how are you going to navigate your readers through your text because? readers are going to be wanting to move to other places. I think one example you give is um, the figures and the tables, right? These are going to attract quick attention. They're going to be scanned and so on. And then the reader might touch down somewhere deeper into the text and they missed most of the introduction and so on. Um, I wonder if you could speak about this order of information or this this structuring of text.
0: Well, I think it's such an interesting question because uh – the point that i basically make about order of information is that uh, we want in all of our writing for what we consider to be the most important message to actually uh reach the reader that we're you know that we're that we are addressing how do we do that well you know one of the models that you can follow is the journalistic model and the journalistic model more or less goes from the idea of uh, put the most important information up front, right? The, uh, the notion that used to be followed in, uh, in newspapers of the inverted pyramid, right? Put your most important information up front. And then as you go down through the article, get to less and less important information. Now, this used to be really important in newspaper journalism when we were only talking about print and an editor could like cut an article from the end. And you wouldn't be losing too much. Now that most of the the journalism is done online, uh, that that need isn't as, as strong there as it used to be. However, I ask students in the book and also in my teaching, I ask them to think about how they themselves read. How do you read? What do you attend to? What do you tend to ignore? I even use a little thing that I call the distance test. And I like will show a book to a, a class or ask or ask students to take a, a page of writing and to hold it at a distance and to ask them where does your eye go to? On that page, right? Or on the screen. Where does your eye go to? Most of the time people's eyes go to no surprise here, they go to bits of text that are surrounded by white space, right? Rather than by the long dense paragraphs. Uh, paragraphing is one of these things I really really get into because too often students think that paragraphing doesn't matter when in fact it's incredibly important in terms of visual appeal so one part of the order of information is is to be conscious of where a reader's eye will go to but another thing is where students and readers are most interested it's no surprise that people will ordinarily as you point out read the title right? Read the abstract. And then if they're interested, they may go directly to the conclusions, right? And, and ignore everything else that's in between. And the publishing industry has sort of abetted this way of, of doing things in, in science, because so often the, um, the, the methods and materials sections and the results sections get shunted over into a supplement that is not even part of the article itself. So writers have to think about the order of information that they present to a reader and how readers are actually prone to to reading.
1: I know that when I'm writing myself, now that's sometimes in a very different vein than my students because many of my students come from the biological sciences. I'm always very keen to think also on the micro level of this order of information. So I'm thinking, let's say three or four sentences together. And I'm thinking, how do I get the reader to the next sentence? Or why does the next sentence bring them on so that they go to the one after it and so on? And I sometimes notice that in the research article, this sort of thinking can't be involved with the kind of text I meet there it mm-hmm. it it has much more the feeling that, um, let's say i'm 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 generalizing, but that the average sentence that I'll run into next to others on that micro level I was just talking about is it's just sort of holding its place, right? it 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 was meant mm-hmm. to have this bit of information, and the next one has its bit of information. And at best, and this is something you bring up also in the book, the idea of concise prose, but also clear transitions, at best, mm-hmm. the transition is, is flagged and there's an alarm that goes off with an in addition, with a furthermore or a however or some other beginning bit that signals right. we're moving to the next sentence.
0: <laughs> yes, I mean, uh, the notion that different kinds of words play like uh, uh, conjunctions, for example, right? What is the relationship between the uh, the first sentence and the next sentence? You rightly point out that we can we can have I, I, one of my favorite words is signposts for your reader. Okay, if you use a word like however, you know that you're going to come up with a statement that in some ways works against what you've already said. Uh, if you use the term in addition, then there is a relationship there, and that and that extends to punctuation as well. Right? Uh, what does a piece of punctuation tell us about what's coming next? What's its relationship to something that? that came before. And this is why one of the things that I emphasize so much in the book is the process of writing and the process of revision and the process of editing. Um, When I talk about those concepts, which are common from all writing classes, uh, I try to draw the connection between what happens in the process of designing assignments. I mean, excuse me, designing experiments. And and modifying experiments as they go along. There's no such thing as being able to do all of this at once, right? Because you have to see what you've already done in order to help you determine how you have to change or modify or refine what you've already done. And I try to help students develop the same kind of conscientiousness in terms of their writing that they are already learning to develop in terms of the work that they do within
1: the lab, and that really involves including writing in the research process. Um, I mean, if if that connection can be made, then uh, what you're explicitly, you know, showing students about this conscientiousness would would already be there, wouldn't it? Um, I, I I wonder sometimes at the resistance there is to bringing in a writing program or to um, you know, listening to advice from rhetoricians or people in English departments who care about how writing is done in the science and want communication to improve there.
0: Right. I, I mean, I, I think that we've made so many great strides over the past 40, 50 years in terms of the relationship between, uh, rhetoricians, uh, writing teachers and, uh, teachers of other, of other disciplines, um, through the kind of sharing of information and sharing of perspectives that happens in writing across the curriculum programs, writing in the disciplines programs, for example. Uh, Certainly we're way beyond where we were, um, you know, several decades ago, say prior to the 1970s, when the first writing across the curriculum programs were established. We've we've come a long way in terms of uh, in, in those terms as well. And certainly in the work that you're doing, for example, at Heidelberg with the, with your writing center and with the many many writing centers that are developing uh, in Europe, in Latin America, in in Asia, in other places in the world, um, there is there is an openness uh, to sharing now those perspectives that
1: actually did not exist before that time, and also the ability or or the opportunity, not the ability, the opportunity to show. Uh, scientists things that they perhaps even weren't noticing before in their own writing. Um, if, if you think of the English for Academic uh, Purposes uh, line of research, which for 20 years now has used corpus linguistics to discover new things about the way moves occur inside of a research article, which words are most likely and so on. I mean, these are all facts now that we can bring across which might once have been a divide into uh, the disciplines of the natural sciences and help them along with uh, their publication. Or as you put it, style and tone in your book, when you show that, yes, even the objective sciences search for their tone. It might be a serious mood that they're trying to establish, but it still falls on a category of emotional counterparts, agitated, calm, angry, contented, and so on and so forth.
0: Yes, absolutely. I I love actually getting students to become more sensitive to these issues of style and tone uh, and looking at a scientific article, for example, and asking the question, what is the tone that is established by this article? Can you find language that you would say sets an emotional climate within this piece of writing? Uh, and so those kinds of of binary oppositions you know it's like say you know anger versus calm or between uh you know intense excitement and boredom for example if you look at these contrasts and look at the language that is used even in a a a research review for example or in a scientific research article what are the words that are actually helping in subtle ways to establish an attitude or a mood And if students have not thought of this kind of of, uh, component of scientific writing before, it really helps them to see how that's working within the scientific piece, as well as in other things that they might consider more literary.
1: I would certainly be missing a major point in the book if I uh, didn't bring up the research article, which you dedicate uh, two chapters to, and as you say, is the gold standard and you have very, very many interesting things to say there, and i uh, i know already that many of my students have got quite a lot of help out of it, particularly out of the rhetorical questions of purpose, what it is that you know the introduction is meant to do, and so on. Um, but from your own experience, I, I would be quite interested to hear where is it that you find students stumbling the most, or what is the part of the research article that you need to—you find yourself giving special attention to again and again.
0: Yes, I, I think one of the things that, uh, that stymies my students, and when I mentioned before that a lot of the students don't have really much experience actually working with uh, uh, research articles, uh, is really in when they really get into the weeds of methods and materials. Uh, that becomes the area that is, uh, tends to be the most esoteric Uh, It also is the area that in the terms of creating an article is the most prone to uh, just, as I said, to like dumping in everything, right? Uh, And not actually selecting the kinds of things that are going to be most important uh, for a reader to know. I think one of the things that I mentioned before that I think is is helpful here is that in, in more and more online journals, you'll be seeing this, that methods and materials, and even results, which tend to be the longest and most detailed sections of the research article, that so often more and more of that material is getting put into ancillary areas called supplements that are, you know, located elsewhere. You have to download a separate PDF, for example, in order to to find this material. Um, That is the area that is hardest for. Uh, writers to try to get their heads around in terms of how it contributes to a rhetorical structure within the the research article.
1: Yeah, and that um, is certainly happening all over the place. Uh, You'll get uh, methods or results shown and a supplement, or you'll get it all put into the supplement, as you say. It's not exactly helpful, though, for uh, rhetorical teaching. I mean, we still do, though, have standards of, um, let's say, cell or nature, which uh, prefer the shorter article and three or four figures. And right. there, uh, you know, a solid narrative is is put together as to why the study was done and what the study found. Um, that's certainly, though, just as you described, not the case in very, very many other places, though. Right. Uh
0: but I, I'm glad you brought up the kinds of articles that are, say, published in Science, for example, um, uh, because it, one of the things that's happened in recent years is that those publications have actually become more varied in terms of uh, the different purposes that are served. For example, in, a, in an issue of Science, for example, you're going to find uh, much shorter articles that are addressed to a broader audience, not necessarily to that small research community. And then you'll get a a totally separate publication of science notification, science advances, in which you'll have many, many uh, pieces that are quite a bit longer, and that are very, very specialized. But there's been a recognition in the scientific publication industry, that you have to vary the kinds of uh, publications and the kinds of documents that are going to be uh, uh, meaningful and read by different audiences.
1: Um, if I could, to come back to uh, the the IMRAD, the Introduction Method sure. uh, Results Discussion, uh, you make a, a wonderful case for it um, not being a template, as we were saying earlier, just to be filled in, but a collection, as you say, of highly purposeful tools. And I found that that was a wonderful way of trying to get you know, novice writers or even sometimes seasoned writers to step back and view this thing once more? What is it that they can, you know, they should be asking themselves, what what is it that I can achieve with this rather than how quickly can I get this thing off? Right,
0: right. I mean, uh, it has a lot to do with uh, how uh, academics uh, and researchers uh, see their You know, what their jobs are and what their career ambitions are, et cetera, et cetera. And what I mean by that is that to think about how all of this very detailed research that I have done or that I have contributed to, um, what is the purpose of it? Or what are the purposes that, that are being served? And in order to meet these different purposes, how do I have to craft my writing differently to achieve those different purposes? Um, uh, I, I do a lot of work, uh, in the last few years with, uh, the, uh, Mondavi Institute for, uh, wine and food science at UC Davis. And, um, what I've seen there is a very concerted effort by the scientists who, uh, run and work within that center to really try to think about their mission. What is it that they and what is it and who is it that they are trying to reach and what are the purposes that they're trying to serve? And one of the things I've noticed more and more is that they've become very, very attentive to trying to reach a much broader audience, not only because, you know, of potential donations to the, the, the research from from the larger community, but also to think about who they serve. Because that institute not only serves a, a very broad public, but it also serves the industries of food science and the production of wine. And of course, we're in Northern California. And so, you know, uh, it's, it's a perfect location for that kind of work to go on. But what I've noticed is that they have developed many programs that actually uh, try to address the interests and needs of those different communities in ways that are pertinent to the, to the interests of those, of those people. So there are many public programs. There are many, um, uh, short courses. There are many other kinds of things that they are doing to develop that, that actually require different kinds of rhetoric and different kinds of genres, uh, in order for that work to be accomplished successfully.
1: The, Other thing that uh, I need to uh, certainly address uh, briefly anyway uh, on uh, the research article is the results and discussion divide, which you spend some time talking about. And if I was to answer my own question as to where I see my students generally having the most difficulty, it is in sort of sifting out the materials between those two areas. And uh, some research journals don't help by Talking or even some of uh, the experimental protocols that are handed in here at Heidelberg have a results and discussion section, <laughs> which sort of overthrows the entire uh, the entire question. But uh, you you spend a lot of time analyzing uh, this this issue, and I mean I think one of the first things that people notice with results and discussion is well results has pictures and discussion tends not to, and <laughs> <laughs> I think that's that's an initial divide. Um, And then once you get into the results, people start to really worry about, okay, well, what are the pictures doing? What are the captions doing? And what is my text doing? It seems like there's a huge potential for double up and triple up.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I I have to say that um, some of that doubling and tripling that you mentioned uh, is inevitable because if you talk about results, and you try to report uh, as much of the pertinent information that comes out of the the research as as possible. Uh, And then if you write a discussion section, in the discussion section, you're obviously going to be referring to uh, some of the results that were written in the results section. So there's gonna be a tendency to to repeat uh, information from one section to another. But I I found most helpful in terms of doing my analysis of all the materials that I was reading to draw a distinction in terms of the kinds of questions that are being answered by the results section versus the questions being answered by the discussion section. If you say to yourself uh, in the results section, what are um, findings that came out of the kinds of questions and tests that we were doing in this process. And we're going to report those findings, uh, whether it's in, you know, in tables or in charts or in uh, the scatter graphs or whatever it might be, the tools that, that you're using. The restriction is actually more toward what are the findings that we need to report that come out of this process of research. But then the discussion section really pulls back from that a little bit and sort of tries to answer the question of, so what, right? What is the meaning? What are the meanings of all these results that we have reported? Uh, What are the implications of those results? What are the repercussions, the ramifications, the things that might follow from that reporting of the results? And I think that's a good way to distinguish between the jobs of those two kinds of sections. Now as you pointed out before in many publications we've got now results and discussion as one you know humongous section within a, within a report. That can still work well as long as the reader has given signposts as to what is you know what are the results and then what are the implications of those results.
1: I wonder sometimes if the if the journals really know what it is that they have in in the research article. I mean the imrad structure has so many advantages and the the alter, alterations and the evolutions of it and the changes for instance in uh, the journal of neuroscience I just was reading uh, preparing for a course and I saw that they they have the abstract and then in the middle of the abstract they have the significance statements in bold and the significant statement was kind of like a abstract of the abstract, and I'm I'm starting to wonder if the journals aren't, uh, or if you think of the highlights section that very many journals now uh, publish on a one page, very visual sort of uh, view of what the whole article is about. I'm wondering if in the attempt to try to ease. You know readers' you know approach to the uh, to the to the information to give them a quick uptake of what's actually there. they're not complicating the landscape um if they wouldn't just perhaps you know um uh, it's like the situation we don't need a new law a law's already passed we just need to enforce the law if people were enforcing the abstract as it was as it was meant to be then it it might just do the job right mm-hmm.
0: I think yeah, I think that's true. But I'll notice the different ways in which abstracts are written now, um, and this is something I try to bring in when I'm trying to teach my students about writing abstracts. Um, I have them read a lot of abstracts, right? And what 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 is being accomplished by a particular abstract that you're reading? And there's actually quite a bit of difference from one abstract to another. Um, and uh, one of the things that I think is interesting, something you pointed out, is that. Some abstracts are now written so that they become, instead of say uh, a paragraph which tries to cover the entire piece that's been written, uh, what they'll do is like they'll identify with a bolded heading like, you know, introduction or like, you know, background, results and materials, results, uh, significance, right? And they will have like little subheads within the abstract. I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing. I think it's actually can be very helpful to readers uh, if they know that if a little section of the abstract talks about significance, that then they can go to the uh, discussion section where that's going to be fleshed out.
1: Yeah, no, I I, I would very much agree. it's, it's probably the question of it needs to be tested and tried. You know, I mean, there's every reason to you know put innovations out there, but um, to be putting gizmos out there is probably a different thing, isn't it? <laughs> um, one, one area that I highly respect in the book is what you have to say about ethos or reputation or character, as it might be um, translated. And this is, of course, central to um, rhetoric, uh, but it's probably not what comes first to mind uh, when people think of writing in the sciences. And yet it is just so hugely important. And one of the conflicts that you bring up, I, uh, I found, at least for me, as being slightly new, this idea of rhetorical effectiveness, Demands, of course, as you've said, in many cases, a sort of selectivity, right? That you're focused and picking out what it is that you're going to show. But but ethical inter- integrity, especially in the science, demands being broad and inclusive. Yeah. So immediately we end up with this basic conflict going on.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's something that that I wrestle with and I know that a lot of other people wrestle with also. Is that uh, you know, for to meet rhetorical purposes, no matter who the audience is, there has to be a principle of selectivity. I mean, it is not just, it is not possible or uh, recommended in in any kind of way, just to, as I like to use that metaphor of dumping everything, you know, into a results section. For example, um, you know, here's all the tests we did. Here's all the results that we came up with. You figure it out, right? Uh, you can't do that to a reader. You have to have some kind of sense of selectivity uh, to make the reading process at all manageable. Um, but on the other hand, I think where really, really this ethical dimension really becomes important is in thinking about the kinds of messages that scientists give to a, um, you know, a broader public who is, who is not interested in doing the research themselves, but is really, really interested in trying to act upon the recommendations of science. And I see this happening throughout the the pandemic, uh, that, uh, scientists who are continually asking for, uh, the trust and confidence of, uh, you know, the, the broad, uh, public of people who are affected by all of these decisions from day to day about, you know, how do I act in, in, with, with other people? How do I think about a vaccine? All of these kinds of things. Uh, the, the scientists want to be trusted, but the basis of trust for science is the scientific process. If there is no uh, attention to the, the process of peer review or the process of the careful design of an experimental trial, for example, then there is no trust that, that, you know, that can occur. Meanwhile, of course, the public is asking for results. Uh, and so there is always going to be this conflict between the need for a rigorously carried out process and the need to present results in a timely fashion. And one of the things I've been very happy to see within this process is that most of the scientists involved, even the ones who are, you know, addressing the public directly, most of them have been very careful to talk about the need for enough time to do this research well, uh, but, and, and also uh, to follow the protocols for experimental trials. So I think that by and large, the scientific community has been very ethical in its response. And there has been a minimum of the kind of, you know, quick results, kind of, um, you know, pandering to sort of like this desire for immediacy.
1: Yeah, I, I've very much um, observed the same. I, I would completely agree there. Uh, one interesting uh, topic that comes up in very many forms, especially also in the last chapter where you talk about editing sentences, uh, but appears elsewhere as well, is is the question of style. And style in science uh, makes, again, many people think of the literary. But if we, right. as you do also, I would say, um, maybe I'm putting it into my own words, but if you define style rather as achieving in sentences effects and presenting in sentences voice, well, then it becomes something that really is just omnipresent throughout all writing. Because whether or not you have a handle on your writing, you're still achieving effects in your sentences. There might be bad ones or mislaid ones or misguiding ones, but they're still there. Uh, So I wonder what you would say to somebody who sort of just shakes their head at the idea even of style in science.
0: I, I would say that um, um, what I would ask of that person is to say, "I want you just to think about when when you write a scientific article in your field, um, what are you using as the models for the kind of communication that you do, and how would you characterize the kind of style that Uh, you are trying to achieve in that article. Um, Because the assumption that I would be making is that regardless of the kind of writing that you are doing, you are exhibiting uh, faithfulness to a kind of style that you pretty much could identify. Um, And when I've asked people to do this, they're usually pretty good about being able to define what it is that they're trying to achieve. And where I did a lot of this work was in my 2006 book that I did with Terry Myers Zawaki, which is Engaged Writers in Dynamic Disciplines. And we asked a lot of academic writers about stylistic uh, and generic kinds of questions that they, that they did in their own writing. And even people within the sciences were actually very good, once they think about it, about trying to define what the style is in the work that they do. And one of the best questions that we came up with was to say, was to say um, um, within your field, what are different kinds of things that people can write and what are the different styles that they use? And once people begin to think about it, they can come up with these differences. Too often, the problem is that they've never asked that question or no one has ever asked them to think about it before. And once they're asked, then they're able to think about it and come up with with good uh, distinguishing
1: answers. That's been my starting point with um, teaching writing that um, scientists are fully capable of doing this. You just need to offer them the opportunity to reflect for a moment and, and, and show them the value of reflecting for a moment. And and they'll come up just as you've said, with the sorts of answers that they need to you know to have for their own writing. Right. Well Chris, you you've been very generous with your time, but I, I do have one last question. Um you talk about researchers writing journalism, for example, um reading reaching broader audiences. You talk also a whole area in the book that we didn't even touch upon, journalists writing about science. Um, mm-hmm. But what can you say from your own experience and in your own opinion about English teachers like us and like so many throughout the world in writing centers showing either of these groups, but especially the scientists in their disciplines, how to write their own research?
0: Uh, are you talking about how to write their own research in a sort of a journalistic
1: fashion or, or i'm thinking in, in probably what? more in the traditional research article or if it is then a dissertation um that we right. that we're helping them as outsiders because very I, I i suppose that's the point i didn't make clear uh, that you know right. very often in the disciplines you get looked at a, for, as a writing instructor as okay you can fix the sentences up but i think after that your job's done right <laughs>
0: Well, I I mean, one of the things I've thought a lot about over the many years is, is like yourself, I've I've had lots and lots of experience in writing centers, uh, particularly when I was at George Mason University. Um, And I've I've thought a lot about the the role that writing centers play uh, in terms of trying to give advice to people who come in from, you know, this huge array of of different disciplinary areas. Uh, And when I teach a writing course uh, in science, I don't claim to be an expert in any of the scientific areas that that my students are writing in. Uh, I'm always learning from my students. And I think one of the things that we can do that's most valuable in terms of helping uh, students who come from different disciplinary areas and actually other professionals who come from different disciplinary areas is by just asking them from our outsider's perspective to explain to us What is it that they're doing in their writing? What are they attempting to do in their writing? Um, If I read a piece of writing that uh, one of those folks has done, as I've frequently done, uh, I can come up with questions to ask them uh, that they may not have thought of before, and that is very valuable coming from the perspective of somebody who's not part of that research community. You know, as we well know, um, Uh, any area that we feel particularly comfortable in or experienced in, um, it becomes harder and harder for us as time goes on actually to see outside our own frame of mind. And so it's really helpful for us. I know it's very helpful for me to get people who uh, are not in my area asking me questions about the things that I have written so that that interchange that occurs between the outsider and the person who's inside can be very, very helpful to helping the insider understand uh, what is just assumed by the insider and what really needs to be explained and clarified for other readers.
1: All right. Well, uh, thank you very much. That is Christopher Tice and his book, Writing Science at the 21st Century, was out 2019 with Broadview Press. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Chris. Goodbye. Thank you so much, Daniel. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication.